what I was saying, and then Sam popped in and, and interrupted me, is just this one time, aside from the one time, now this is a risk. This is a big risk, because the last time that we did this, Stephen made COVID happen. So on this occasion, I am considering, because it is basically Stephen's birthday. This is your birthday present, by the way, Stephen. You're not getting anything else this year. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Stephen could open the episode instead and even make the little, you know, like just do the whole opening little snide. And here we are talking about David Foster Wallace after long, and you you know, that's your, that's your opportunity before anyone else really says anything to just fully go off for, for like two seconds before we get into the main content. Man, you gotta tell me this stuff more in advance because like, I could have had a whole spiel where it's like, has like 50, 50 footnotes and everything. Oh, that'd be great. Actually, can we just assume I come up with a with a thing? Because I like I need to to craft something that has a bunch of like footnotes in it. And Dave Foster Wallace does this amazing thing when he's doing his audiobooks, where he'll have like his voice at a different frequency that is indicating that he's on a footnote. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Now you guys have listened to him. Ah, oh, it's it's so wonderful. It, uh, just... We will see if that works. Works. <laughs> But for now, <laughs> we'll do it normally. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Problem with Reading podcast. I'm Steven. I'm Brevin. And I'm Sam. I'm Livingston. And it is a delightful day that we are able to ta- talk about our Lord and Savior, David Foster Wallace. Footnote, one of the greatest thinkers of our generation, uh, one that has personally inspired me and footnote. And I uh, I cannot wait to get started. He has all sorts of interesting thoughts. He has all sorts just this is something that I have been going for for the past four years. Uh, Brevin and Sam have cruelly stifled my creative vision, my uh, my appreciation for this master artist. And uh, oh man, we are we are gonna we're gonna have a fun time with it. But before we have time a fun a fun time with it, uh, Brevin, what are you drinking? Oh uh, well, uh, as for me on this fine fall evening, what else but some Sam Adams uh, Oktoberfest seasonal beer? left behind by a friend on uh, one of the game nights that I hosted. I just want to note for the record, while I, I, I do win many of the board games that I play, that that night was a particularly dismal failure uh, where I did not win any of them. And so these beers that were left behind are my consolation and my only joy until the next game night when I can reassert my dominance. Excellent. And what about you, Sam? Um, I'm drinking Old Fashioned, made with Evan Williams, and some, uh, some artisan bitters from... Somewhere. I don't know. They were a gift from my dad, but they're delicious. Chocolate and uh, Angostura. So, yeah. Well, we, we do all, well, at least uh, Brevin and I have a personal experience with your uh, dad's taste in alcohol, and it is it is quite good. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Liv? Uh, so, in honor of David Foster Wallace, I decided to not go with an alcoholic drink, because I wanted to, like, you know, sympathize with the, the alcoholic struggle, and I got myself an RC Cola. I couldn't find any Diet Right or Mr. Pibb, which I know are some of his favorites, but um, I'm going to drink a cola. Um, arguably worse for me, because uh, I do not do well with caffeine. I'm probably going to be up the entire night, but I'll do it for, I'll do it for the Lord and Savior. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah, I, oh, well, you'll have to edit that out. Um, shoot, I was going to say when, when you said that you got a drink in honor of David Foster Wallace, I was really 
excited for a minute there because i mean the the, the big new reading of, of this experience is the you know supposedly fun thing that i'll never do again about the the cruise ship so i thought you were gonna say so i have like a slippery nipple or something and i was like i yes. finally learned what that is or the, uh, because uh, I, because I do the not want one? to put that in in my search history uh, so. fuzzy fuzzy navel Fuzzy Navel. Oh, yeah. 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 Both really bizarre names. Not a fan. I mean, can you imagine going up to a bartender and unironically ordering that? Well, no, you have to ironically order it. There's there's no way you could get away with unironically. And that's the trap, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace does not approve. But as for myself, along with Liv, I have done something in honor of David Foster Wallace, our Lord and Savior. Guys, this drink, this is water. Oh, I stand oh, by it. I was, at, <laughs> I was in the store and I was like looking at a bottle of whiskey. Said, I'm, I'm out at my house, and I just thought, no, I, I need to, I need to stick with water because this is water, guys. This is water. Lost me. Go home, Oh, guys, this is gonna be so fun. I'm so excited for this. I'm already regretting what I have done. You've given me an hour and a half to talk about David Foster Wallace, so you haven't begun to regret. Uh, but in any case, uh, speaking of DFW, uh, as he would probably call himself, given that he has a weird obsession with uh, initializations and uh, acronyms and all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, Liv, who, who who was David Foster Wallace? Well, I guess we should introduce Liv first. Yeah, that, so Liv that was my is... question. Who is Liv? I know who David Foster Wallace is. <laughs> I don't Look, who is Liv? Liv? I don't know who I am. No, I'm your friend. Um, I've been good friends with Stephen for a long time. We went to Spring Arbor University together. Uh, we lived on the same floor for a year, didn't we? Uh, well, technically, yes, but that was a couple of years ago. That's right. We were roommates. No, I was thinking back in college, but you're right. We did live together, and then you lived with my dad for a month, which is hilarious. That is true. I did live with his dad for a month. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've been keeping together since uh, through all these travels to Seattle and back to Grand Rapids and uh, all through all those grad school trials. Uh, we're still sticking together, and we, we have a philosophy group that we do on uh, Monday nights, and um, I'm certainly enjoying that friendship, and I'm so glad that I'm here, be able to hear, be here with you guys today. So thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's, it, it's really great to have you. Um, and the reason we invite you is because you're kind of the expert on metamodernism, as it were, because um, I mean, you got your master's degree from Wayne State University in English, and that was one of your main fields of study, right, was uh, metamodernism or post-postmodernism. Correct. I spent quite a bit of time in that field. Oh, well, right on. Um, and so actually, here's where I'm already probably stepping a little bit out. But uh, Dave Foster Wallace, was he credited with kicking it off or was he just one of the major figures of post-postmodernism? More just one of the preliminary figures. He would have never used any of those terms. Um, they, they applied the term new sincerity to him early on, um, but he would have hated those terms. I think he would just said, I'm trying to just be a good person. Um, yeah, that sounds like a very David Foster Wallace thing. Now on to the main part of the show. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who was a writer and professor of English at Emerson College, Illinois State University, and Pomona College. Um, when he was in Illinois State University, he lived like 40 minutes away from my grandparents. And I remember desperately texting them and asking them if they ever met him. And I was very disappointed when I found out now. Um, he's the author of multiple books, including Infinite Jest, The, Bro- the Broom of the System, among other books. And then a collection of essays, such as Consider the Lobster and Brief Hit Interviews with Hideous Men. Uh, in 2005, he delivered a what is now considered probably his most famous work, maybe other than Infinite Jest, um, This Is Water, uh, who more people have definitely uh, listened to slash read all of This Is Water than uh, Infinite Jest. 
And uh, his main shtick was kind of the idea of authenticity, uh, committing yourself to something outside of yourself, anti-irony, um, and kind of like Liv said, sincerity. Um, and so perhaps not known for kicking it off, or at the very least not intentionally kicking off the movement of post-postmodernism, but a lot of people took his ideas, his thoughts, and really eventually kind of crystallized into uh, this movement. And then sadly, he died in 2008 of suicide, and the world has been uh, tragically lacking in uh, overabundance of footnotes and banana- bandanas ever since. Uh, Liv, was, was that a reasonable, uh, I don't know, summation of uh, DFW's life? It's perfect. Perfect. Excellent. Anything you want to add? Uh, no, I'm ready to jump into the his his commencement. Excellent. And so, Brevin, I really don't know what I'm doing driving. Like, what? Do we just have some weird, awkward transition where we hop over to some other thing? Like, this is water? And so you come crawling back to me. <laughs> I was driving the ship. I wasn't anticipating driving a ship. Listen, do you think I wake up at the start of every day and think I'm going to be driving the ship with a podcast? No, I dive in too. But the thing is, I swim, Stephen. I swim. (laughs) But anyway, yeah. So this is water. His uh, famous address uh, was given to a bunch of college students at a lovely little liberal arts college. Uh, And there's not much more that I want to say about that, but Stephen, what is the central story of This Is Water? What is his big metaphor that he's trying to get across to all these students about to enter into the big, wide, modern world? Right, so the central story goes, there are two young fish swimming through the uh, the ocean, and they come across an older fish, and he shouts out, morning boys, how's the water? And they continue swimming. And then a few minutes later, one of them looks to the other and says, what the hell is water? Um, and he then goes on to say, this is kind of the standard commencement speech opener, a little didactic parable meant to, to demonstrate some get greater truth and uh, kind of launches from there into his main thesis that the greatest truths in our lives are the ones that are the most obvious. Um, but in the fact that they're most obvious, they're the, kind of the most difficult to grasp or the most difficult to really live out. Um, and for him, one of the, the greatest uh, truths um, or uh, it, one of the greatest truths that you have to come to wrestle with is that every experience of your life, you are at the center of it. But that does not mean that you are at the center of everyone else's life or that you are at the center of the universe. Um, that it is a very default position for us to assume that we are the the most interesting, the most important, et cetera, et cetera. And if we allow that to be the default, then that is according to his thesis, not the good way to live. It's the default way to live, but not the good way to live. The, uh, the thing I would add is that uh, the the water that's around us is that you have choice in the ways that you approach life. And too often we don't notice that we have the choices in our lives to make. And that's the default setting that you're talking about is that people don't consider the fact um, that they are selfish all the time. And you have the ability to actually choose to choose to not be selfish, right? That that's one of the central aspects of uh, the water around us. Yeah. And I think he, I mean, he moves even further from just the fact that we have choices, but that all of those choices lead into much larger focuses of everyone's life. I mean, I didn't realize, because Stephen, one line that, that you bring up often uh, in enough is, you know, and, and, and other people do too, but just that everybody worships something. One of his most powerful sequences in This Is Water is just talking about everyone worships something, and 
his opinion being how would you guys describe him he's not secular per se he's in a middle ground like one of the people who you know I don't want to be uncharitable, but the, the the line that he says, like, it doesn't matter if you're committed to the fourfold path or to Jesus Christ or to any number of religions. The difference between committing yourself to something like that is that they're transcendent and outside of yourself, as opposed to committing yourself to yourself, to money, to fame. And all of those things, he says, will eat you alive in, in the end. You have to be to look at something outside of yourself. And I think we've seen an extension of his thought in a lot of kind of the, maybe we'll call them like neoconservative movements. Um, primarily, I think of like Jordan Peterson, who, for all my quibbles with him, kind of has that a lot as his thesis of this whole idea that you're going to live your life in this completely secular void of meaning. Everything is just mundane materialism that it just doesn't work see the symbol behind everything, see the meaning behind everything, he kind of starts fumbling at the idea of, well, religion kind of gives you that. He himself, similar to Wallace, can't quite hop over the gulf of belief, but still sees it as, well, you need to believe in something. Um, and so I see there, there being some sort of logical extension of these ideas um, in the forms of Peterson et al. Yeah, I mean, I would say that David Foster Wallace gave it a good Petersonian try, um, you know, fell a little short. Uh, you, you bite your tongue. <laughs> Every time I hear Peterson, I just think, I too have read Viktor Frankl. Uh, anyway, the, the point being just that David Foster Wallace in this example, in this story is, is talking about the idea of liberal education as a thing that helps you shape yourself to be oriented away from the yawning chasm of yourself of thinking that you're the only person in the universe and the only thing that matters and it's trying he's trying to say your education is meant has given you the ability to basically be better than that at any given point that's that's the thinking that you've been trained to do sam this this wasn't your first time encountering this is water right no i've listened to it a half dozen times at least over the last several years i i try i mean yeah it's it's a continual it's an amazing piece it's a continual reminder and especially his delivery is excellent um no it's i, I listened to that i mean it was it was my first time digging into much of his other writings and i want to someday tackle infinite jest when i have the the patience and concentration to actually do it i just need to pick like a winter to to read the whole thing but um no yeah it's uh, I don't know. I feel like this is water. Maybe this is getting too much analysis, so cut this or move it around if you need to. But um, this is water. Is like it's so succinct because of its form and because it's like a, the commencement speech versus his other works, notably the the, the cruise ship one that I listened to. Um, they're they're much more opaque. They're much more roundabout, and it's harder to get to what his point is. So I don't know. I mean, I, I quite enjoy this is water. I think the philosophy there is very good. Um, you know, it's less clear of what he's saying in the in the um, longer works i guess so i think that's that's a good point to, to sort of take an inventory so sam has experienced this is water but relatively little david foster wallace outside of that until now for myself i unfortunately made it maybe like 15 pages into infinite jest before i set it down and never picked it up again i'm told this is a common occurrence uh but i did read uh, a couple of collections of his of his essays uh, which i quite enjoyed actually over a long winter the COVID winter actually um and that was a great experience because i do think 
David Foster Wallace is in many ways, and, and his philosophy too, which we can get into later, is very much an immersion. You're, you're, you're sort of suffusing yourself with it and, and getting into a world as opposed to, this is water is very much, I think, out of the norm for how yes. direct he is. Uh, Liv, what's, what's your uh, David Foster Wallace contamination level? Yeah, I was highly contaminated back uh, just a couple years right out of college, um, consumed quite a bit. And actually, um, surprisingly, I've, I've gone kind of on a different journey reading, reading a lot of other works, and I have not touched David Foster Wallace probably in two years. So this is, this is a nice kind of come back to the fold, maybe, as Stephen might call that. Um, so, um, yes, I was inundated with his work. I've read the vast majority of, of the things he had written, uh, but, th- but that's been a while. Um, and then, honestly, I probably haven't read as much as Liv. Um, so I read Infinite Jest, um, and I've read a bunch of his essays in, in one form or another. So, actually, I listened to most of Consider the Lobster. Um, I got on an audiobook and listened to it probably three or four times. Um, yeah. Read a handful of them, but... Um, and then, I think... I don't think I ever made it through any of his other short essays, like, like the, for example, brief interviews with Hideous Men. I never read the whole mm. thing like front to back. I would just pick right. out individual essays, um, okay. and then Oblivion, um, which was another collection of this time short, short stories. stories. Yep. To be honest, I it's funny because I think he has said that he likes his fiction more than his nonfiction. I'm the exact mm-hmm. opposite. I love his nonfiction. Um, his essays, I or his, yeah, his essays, I think do get more at the heart of what his philosophy is. If they're more mount, more roundabout than this is water, then his his fiction is so much more roundabout than than his essays. And so I like kind of the middle ground of kind of his essays, where he dances around his ideas, but kind of still is willing to actually kind of occasionally bring them up. So then, thinking of this is water, do you think that it's accurate enough to say that this is water is almost like a thesis statement to his to his larger project of nonfiction or what's its relationship to the rest of his work Liv, you want to take this one uh sure so i would say this is water is not what he is trying to do with his with his fiction writing um this is water is uh very much for a very particular audience and rhetorically he's trying to do a specific thing with this is water um also the style of this is water is um some of the most straightforward modern kind of writing that i think he's he's done it's um uh it's not using any of his postmodern techniques or trying to be ironic in any kind of way i think he's actually trying to be by far the most sincere uh sincere in that work i think a lot of the rest of david foster wallace's project um is something to do more with um, entertainment and how, how, like, how can you be? I, he might say something like, "How can I be a human being in society today with the inundation of entertainment?" Um, which I don't think this is water is necessarily trying to tackle. So you're saying that his fiction project is yes. how do we live in an entertainment world? What about his nonfiction project? That's really interesting. Oh man, the nonfiction project. This is water is probably. M- a little more in line with. I'm thinking of just the consider the lobster essay. I, the uh, when, I, when I teach it to students, the word I really make students hang up on is this idea of considering. Um, so it's, uh, I would think the rest of his project is the world is much bigger 
than the average person is willing to assume in any one moment, maybe you should take some time to consider it. I think that would be kind of the project of most of the essays. And that's why the supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is so interesting because he considers ad nauseum about every little aspect of this cruise ship. Um, and his considerations lead to uh, um, a, a real nail in the coffin for that they, they're awful. Uh, but at least he's considering, right? And that 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 would be that's why he, he go and undertakes these projects. That's why he goes to the Maine Lobster Festival and he goes to the Illinois State Fair and he does all these um, kind of excursions because he wants to consider what are these movements actually doing. Yeah, that if one really pays attention to you know a week long cruise, then it becomes a thirty page project. If one really, really considers and pays attention to a week long cruise, it becomes a hundred pages of that with also footnotes. Yes. I love his footnotes. I, I am curious, do you think um, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is kind of an intersection of both his project with his nonfiction with his fiction in that there is a lot of entertainment industry wrapped up in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again that you don't really see in any of his other works except maybe, oh, I'm going to butcher this one, it's E Unum Pluribus? Instead of Unibus correct. How you say how you say that? Correct. E unibus plurum. Uh, no, that that definitely makes sense. That the supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is also trying to tackle the entertainment industry. Um, I that makes sense that there seems to be a, a cross section of maybe both of those those projects simultaneously. So on the whole, you would you would, maybe with the exception of one or two, his nonfiction project is more of this kind of sincerity or lack of irony but his fiction project is more how do you be a human being in the midst of this entertainment crisis yes and the and the form of how he's doing it really matters because the form is the part of the that what i would call if we get to it in the future that meta modern project right it's the the style of how he's actually creating the text and giving it to the reader to consume is part of the project that's why i think this this is water doesn't feel characteristic of it because it doesn't have footnotes it's not meant to take the audience member and put them through this kind of um confusion hellhole of i don't I've, you know all this information and i'm not sure how i'm supposed to be reading this no it's actually very linear the way he he progresses through this is water and so it's meant to be consumable um in a in a more standard way what what is the point of his footnotes and for our for our listener i suppose just to clarify most of his um uh, essays and especially Infinite Jest um, are littered throughout the entire time with footnotes. And Infinite Jest is very infamous for being mostly endnotes. Um, I think, well, not mostly endnotes, but all there are no footnotes, only endnotes. And it's what the book is like. I think a tenth footnote or endnotes or something like that. A very non-trivial portion is the endnotes, and those endnotes will often have their own endnotes, and it'll just be this whole maze of things to get through. So I guess all that to say, what is the Kind of what is the point? What is he doing with these footnotes or endnotes? I was just going to say, I mean, isn't he just kind of breaking the structure of the traditional novel by using this typically academic tool to add another layer of nonlinearity to it? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a postmodern device to use the form of the book to make a point about the book itself, right? Is, is that what you're going to say, Liv? 
Uh, yes, um, I would go a little further in saying that a part of the project of footnotes is, or especially with endnotes, is you actually have to physically take your book and flip it to the back, um, and you have to make a conscious choice of whether or not you're going to make, you're going to go to the back and actually read that endnote and what portion of that endnote you're going to be reading, and are you going to read the footnote to the endnote? Because um, I think part of the project then is to turn the reader, the audience, into the performance, and then this is that that's that meta modern step is that reading itself is also a performing act. Um, you're not just passively consuming, but you're actively consuming a text as you read it, right? So it's, it becomes entertainment. And that's like that weird thing is how can, how can you make reading entertaining? Because technically it's not an entertainment project in and of itself, but now he's turned it into that through, through the use of footnotes and endnotes. Brilliant. You could also just throw in here the observation of uh, the sort of the parallel evolution and the sort of crosstalk pollination between things like hyperlinks and hypertexts as concepts and footnotes being sort of uh, not an early version, that's uncharitable, but a version of that, maybe. 100%. He is uh, writing to an internet age prior to the internet being mass massively distributed to the public. It is kind of wild okay. how at least fairly prophetic he was to seeing kind of a lot of the writing on the wall of this new thing called the internet starting to really manifest. Um, I think he wrote Infinite Jest in what, the mid-90s? And uh, yeah, what, 93, 96, something like that? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and he predicted Netflix. Like, there's a there's very much a Netflix technology that's in this this world that he's created um he's he's seeing the writing on the wall and in some ways i have i have to sympathize with him or yeah sympathize with him and he seems a bit of a cassandra crying while everyone ignores him listen i just wanted my dvds uh and i will not apologize for this this is not this is not my fault it's like this is making more sense as you explain it because a good, good friend of mine he doesn't listen to the podcast but he does i'm so sorry for the potential humiliation but he was he was um telling me about like every time I want to try to read this book, he's like, Well, you need to read it like all in one go. And it's a project and telling me about how he read it um during the COVID summer. The first the 20, summer of twenty twenty from his balcony in Brooklyn. All right, from his fire escape. Sorry, his fire escape in Brooklyn. He read the entire thing. And this is making a lot more sense. That's part of the performance of of reading the structure of this book, which that's impressive. I like it. Also sounds like a pain to read. Yeah, I find it brilliant. Most people actually hate it. Yeah, um, because I think part of the onus and responsibility is now put onto the reader. It's not something that's passively consumed where the author has to do all of the work. You have to do work now. And that kind of sucks now in our age, right? Yeah, I like passive consumption. Well, and not to skip ahead, but isn't that kind of part of the idea of like the meta meta modernist is that you've got like like it, it has to demand action of the person who is reading it. like meta modernism is definitely not like it, it is slightly authoritarian in that nature and I, I saw that strain in the in the article that you shared live where it's like yeah. it it it, ha it takes on the the mantle of being able to demand something of the reader and demand action because of the because it respects the agency of the person who is consuming the media which is very, very interesting. So The way you framed that was brilliant. Well, brilliant as that was, let's not get too far ahead <laughs> okay. of ourselves. Uh, I like Liv. <laughs> you can come around more. <laughs> <laughs> For the benefit of our dear listener, the single one of you out there, you are the only one listening to this podcast, and we appreciate oh. you, you personally. So to this listener, 
uh, the readings we have all done mostly in preparation for uh, this this podcast, which I'll post the titles of, but not the links, because all the links I found are incredibly bootleg, uh, uh, is uh, that makes it better. fun thing I'll never do again oh. about a uh, cruise, a the view from Mrs. Thompson's, which is where DFW was when 9-11 happened. Uh, an interview that was in a academic journal that the name escapes me if someone wants to shout it out. Oh, the review of contemporary fiction. Thank you. Uh, with Larry McCaffrey, uh, which apparently has some sort of a cult status now. Uh, those are those are our readings that 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 we have done. Obviously, we have other uh, several of us have have other things that we've read, but those are sort of our our, our core texts that we're trying to focus in a little bit on. Uh, David Foster Wallace's nonfiction project with the vague the- uh, with the vague thesis statement of this is water. Um, although I will refrain at this point, though I reserve the right to in- to change this policy later if necessary. I will not at this point ban references to Infinite Jest, though that may come up later if we have a problem, gentlemen. Well, I mean, so what you're saying is that we might be flicking back and forth from one his fiction to his nonfiction, much like a book that has endnotes. You are on such thin ice, Mister. <laughs> Oscillating, uh, maybe. <laughs> Look, I'm just trying to live up to a thing. Yeah, it's a tennis game, back and forth. <sighs> well, anyway, uh, so one of the uh, texts that we all partook in is, as I said, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which is about a vacation that David Foster Wallace took on a cruise ship at the magazine's dime with the orders to write a story of some kind about his experiences, which turns into like a hundred pages. And I didn't even count how many footnotes. Uh, but yeah, this I, I, I hadn't read this before, and I quite enjoyed it. It, it very much brought me back to, you know, uh, 2020 and just diving into a, a, a full book of essays by... David Foster Wallace, very much, you know, his very good stuff by him. Um, what did y'all think? What were your 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 sort of top top moments? What's what did we get out of this one? I I do very much appreciate how he is able to take something that is kind of unilaterally considered a good, at least like kind of gut reflex. It's a good in that there's there's a cruise ship, you go, you have fun, things are good, but there's always this kind of thrum in the back of your head that like, well, is this good? It, like, and everyone just kind of has this weird reflex around a cruise in that there is something kind of vapid about it, but no one quite knows what. And he is able to, without dismissing any of the fun stuff, as in, you know, unlimited time at the pool, lots of food, very comfortable. Like, he, he's able to acknowledge all this and then kind of dig beneath the surface and say, what is it about this? Like, why does this, and he uses the term despair quite a lot. Why does this seem to carry with it despair? Why do I seem despairing even in the midst of all this? Perhaps it's because of all this. Um, and it's, he does a very good job. I, I hesitate to say deconstructing the cruise, but that seems to be at least part of his project here is to deconstruct the cruise experience. But it's still done in this, I, I would argue, morally charged way in that he's pretty much saying this is not a good way for a human to live. Um, and so I appreciate, as with many of the things where he kind of goes in and does start you doing the process of deconstruction, there always seems to be this moral imagination behind the deconstruction that he's still trying to dig to something rather than dig from something. So I, I do want to say one thing before Liv comes in with a brilliant comment, as I see him teeing up to do. 
uh, is about this. Th this essay is a really great example of his methodology, I think, or at least what I've experienced of, of his methodology, which I think has been described as maximalist or, or something to that effect. Encyclopedic. Encyclopedic. Excellent mm. word. Um, where drawing forward from this is water, you know, the idea of noticing and being fully intent on your surroundings, fully saying fully in the moment isn't sounds less it's it's not it, it doesn't do justice to 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 what he's he's doing because he's not experiencing the moment he is self-consciously in the moment looking at himself looking two layers up above himself and then also like analyzing the manufacturer of the fire extinguisher on the wall and you know all of their safety complaints going back 30 years like he's doing all of these things simultaneously probably and most you know probably obviously some in post production but part of that is also just that each of those moments has that amount of worthwhile things to say and observe and dissect and think about and i almost i don't want to disagree too too strongly because i am slightly out of my depth but deconstruction almost seems like it does a disservice because deconstruction as it's popularly used to me, it invokes more like applying a theory to a, a situation to see, ah, here is how this is classist, for example. Here is how we can analyze this and find it sexist. His project is, if we really pay attention to this and pull it all out, not apart, but if we look at it closely and give it, and give it fully its due, we will see the truth for what it is. And we'll find out what that is in the process of noticing the water, as opposed to looking for something that's that we'd like to find i i very much like that actually i very much appreciate the fact that yeah deconstruction typically is trying to find some inherent conflict or inherent classist or sexist or what have you or at the very very least as deconstruction is commonly used nowadays um so no you you do bring up a good point that it is i uh, well back to what liv was saying considering like considering fully consider the the cruise Yes, 100%. There's, um, maybe this is still getting into a little bit of metamodernism too much. Um, there's different analogies for how knowledge is acquired by the human. Um, and they give three different ways. They call it the, the hermeneutic, the eric, and then the, the eumenidic. For the eumenides, the furies. Um, hermeneutic is you acquire knowledge by digging. And then when you dig deep enough, you'll find knowledge. Um, eric is like a rainbow. It just kind of appears to you. It's like brilliant. It's um, revelation. It's so like when God gives you something, like that's how you acquire the knowledge. And then the last one you're talking is the um, humanities, uh, which is the, the furies. They actually come and rip things apart. And by ripping it apart, that's how you find out the knowledge. Um, and I like how you described it, Bevan. He's not doing ripping apart. It's not deconstruction in that sense where it's, I'm trying to rip this apart because it's evil or something like that. It's this more digging. I'm going to uncover knowledge that's underneath right so it's this digging so we just call that hermeneutic um and i i'd agree this does not feel deconstructive it's it's more her hermeneutic in its approach sam favorite moments yeah i have i have thoughts i'm, I'm trying to collect them i mean i i like the piece i thought it was enjoyable and granted i listened to it in one like two hour stretch on double speed on audible and it was great um and i just sat back and listened last night um but um I don't know. I mean, it's it's like I am a, maybe it, maybe this is a postmodern critique of the post postmodernists. I don't know. It, it seems like him being so analytical about what he's experiencing. And he's not ripping it apart necessarily. He's trying to give it its due. Like I mean, he 
he went on that cruise and was trying to get as much as he could out of it and like as much relaxation, whatever that means, right, out of out of it that he could. But um, but there's this constant like analysis that he's doing. And I guess I can't help but wonder if he actually experienced the cruise as the cruise, because one aspect of it is it just being this weird, this weird experience that happens to you and none of the the six-time cruisers who were at table 64 were really like uh i mean nobody was analyzing it on the level that he was and so that might explain why they couldn't understand what he was doing that's not to say that he's wrong it's i I think he is correct that cruises are probably hideous i've never been on one but I, i i would i would buy his argument that they're pretty hideous um I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just it's just like the question I left left it with was like, yeah, he, he creates this this air about it. But are there very many human experiences that you could not do that with, which would be kind of the most critical thought I could have about about the piece um, is it like it seems like you can kind of read any such experience, whether that's I mean, we, we've we've debated ad nauseum about living in a big city like I do um, or, you know, what what is that experience dehumanizing or is it like community building and really essential is you know you can you can analyze stuff like that forever and always come to a bad conclusion about it and i and i wonder if his analysis could ever lead to a positive like an unequivocally like positive good conclusion yeah this leads into the view from mrs thompson's which i found um to be a a far more moving piece um and not just because it's significantly shorter but also because it's it's him analyzing um the aftermath of of 9-11 uh from his position in in bloomington illinois so the middle of the midwest looking at the reaction of his community to this tragedy and seeing some oddities in it um, most notably the flags popping up everywhere and the the strange sense of shared unity but also um sitting in the living room of one of his um basically uh, several of the church ladies and watching the towers go down and just seeing their raw unpolluted but also like uncritical reaction to the tragedy there's none of the criticism of the government mixed in there's nothing that we see accompanying our modern discussions of tragedy it's just authentic and sincere and he says that's ultimately a good thing uh i see in this piece quite a bit of like there's there's tension there i don't even i don't necessarily buy that he's saying even this is like an unequivocally good thing because he's still like looking at the tension of the community who like this patriotism came out of nowhere i love it i mean it's it's humorous how he's talking about how everybody has a flag where all these flags come from because he can't find a flag anywhere uh and he's he's going on for for pages of how he tried to find the flag before finally making himself a flag using construction paper um which is is humorous but anyway I don't know. What were your guys' thoughts? Was this really like, I guess, was it a complete uh, endorsement of this feeling or was he still, it, it still felt to me like there was some degree of criticism here. So I'm curious. I, I think there is criticism, but at the very least he's, he, I mean, he's pretty critical of himself in that he, in the end, kind of accuses himself of being cynical. Um, and he has that, I, I'm going to, not going to do it justice, but um, kind of that devastating line at the end. So he's talking about seeing all these, you know, innocent middle Americans reacting to the tragedy that's far away with, you know, prayer and patriotism. And he just says that it's uh, that it's lonely to be around them, that, quote, truly decent, innocent people can be taxing to be around. I'm not for a moment trying to suggest that everyone I know in Bloomington is like 
Mrs. Thompson. I'm trying rather to explain how some part of the horror of the horror was knowing deep in my heart that whatever America the men in those planes hated so much was far more my America than it was these ladies. Which, man, I mean, yeah, what a devastating and sincerely good conclusion to wrap up with in that he looked at these women and said, no, they're they're better than I am. They're just bet they are better than I am, and therefore they are better off than I am. Um, and it actually, it brings to mind another one of his essays that was significantly longer called Up Simba, which is his covering of the 2000 primary campaign of McCain. And that one has even more tension that, that kind of Sam discussed in that he, his entire, this, this entire essay, he's pretty much saying, I don't approve of McCain's politics. I see a large amount of his politics as very kind of Machiavelli or both his political platform, but also just the way he's going about politics, the way american presidential candidates go about politics very machiavellian very gonna do whatever it takes say whatever it takes put project whatever image it takes to get votes and then he would look at mccain and say and for him his fascination with mccain stemmed from his service in vietnam in which he was captured and tortured and refused to break refused to exit captivity because there had there were prisoners other than him that had been there longer than him and he refused to allow his station of being the son of a u.s general to allow him to get out earlier which only caused him more torture because the vietnamese were not happy about not being able to get kind of a pr win a propaganda win um in any case he looked back at that and said there were no cameras rolling then there were no political platforms to lay out there was no votes to win there was just a man in his cell with every survival instinct in his body screaming take the deal take the deal and so he leaves this as or throughout this entire essay and he leaves the essay with this tension of i see a politician who's wearing a slick suit and who is saying whatever it takes to get votes and who is doing whatever moves it takes to get get votes but i also see a man who is clearly dedicated to his country back in the day, and maybe, just maybe, he still is. And he very much left it in attention. He was not concluding he was still dedicated to his country. He was not concluding this is therefore a good candidate, you should vote for him. I think he said that he didn't vote for him. But he left it in this tension. Um, and that that is kind of a good way of saying it, Brevin. Um, the, this encyclopedic, or this uh, this kind of hyper-stuffed hyper way of viewing the world where you're just trying to take in as much as possible and that's where he concludes with both mccain and view from um mrs thompson's house i like uh, all of that it seems as though the conclusion in a lot of these essays um ends up being uh things are a lot more complicated and you can justify both sides right and that, that's why i can that's why i heard from when steven was talking about up simba as well as the view from mrs thompson's um though with with that last line that whatever america these men had uh the, the america the men in those planes hated so much was my america right so there's that part of america is justifiably cynical i like the the word that you use there but there's also a lot of that sincerity where the uh the reaction to putting all the flags out um and everyone being communally at mrs thompson's um that's the sincere part that didn't deserve it they were innocent and so um there's that that, that real nice tension that i think seems to be concluded in a lot of his essays and i think that that actually is a good link back to both the supposedly fun thing i'll never do again but also a link forward to the interview with larry mccaffrey where he's talking more personally about you know the effects of tv but also his project as a writer trying to live as a person 
because the interesting character in his nonfiction writing is him as an author and as an observer. And he is never fully integrated with the communities that he's observing because he's there as someone to observe them. And he's, you know, to a degree in, in Mrs. Thompson more than the, you know, than the six time cruisers. But he is this very interesting character in his own story. And there's a little bit in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, where he's talking about the sort of contract that a nonfiction writer has with his audience, which is that they'll be open and they'll be honest. And so you're supposed to give them a little bit of leeway to get to the point to, uh, you know, go on, on, on their tangents to exaggerate or whatever, as long as they're generally truthful. And, and in that, in the essay, he takes issue with this other nonfiction writer who writes a story about his, who, who's paid specifically, who the author later says prostitutes himself to write a, you know, sort of a glowing review of what it's like to be on, on a cruise ship. And he's saying that this is violating the, the implicit contract that a journalist, that, are, that, that, that a writer of nonfiction has with his audience. So then David Foster Wallace's contract with his audience is quite interesting because in the cruise uh, story, he's not that admirable of a character. He's very much detached, lurking, saying weird things to people. He's lazy. He's slavish. Uh, you know, he's he he's very. At first blush, he's very honest about himself. And as I was reading it, I was sort of just sort of struck with the thought that my inclination, if someone is being self-revelatory about all of their flaws and sort of things that would normally make me like, I do not want to hang out with you because you are a very sloppy person and I guess sweaty uh, by all indications, uh, that we tend to give that a pass because of the sort of oversharing nature of it, that they're being honest. So you have to give them a pass for the flaws that they are revealing, which I think then links very nicely into sort of a larger question of David Foster Wallace as a author and what I would say, what I would sort of posit maybe for your reaction and response is that he's trapped by that role, is that he wants to present the hermeneutic view, the comprehensive view as a way out. And he wants to, to get to his thesis that you have to commit to something larger than himself. But his role as the observer and as the observer of the observer keeps him trapped in himself, that self-consciousness is ultimately this enemy that he can't escape in his writing and also potentially in in his life there's something vaguely uh nikhil christian about it um the how you attend to something the attention you pay to something changes the thing itself um and what happens when uh you attend to a mirror slash when you attend to yourself and you're viewing yourself through that and how will that eventually change you and i think we to an extent see that with david foster wallace i, I do know that part of part of the writing style that he's using is always trying to push the reader into a point of empathy. Um, I, I know that's um, that's one of his stated goals is, can I get people to feel the experiences of the characters, right? Can I, can I get people to feel things? Um, I think that's really effective in the view from Mrs. Thompson's. I, at the end, I, I empathize with the ladies in the house. I am, I am feeling sorrowful at the grief that they're experiencing for their community. Um, and, so it, and it is effective. And I think part of the way that he's doing that is his hyper attention by him being a character inside allows you to inhabit himself in the house. Right. And that's, there's, there's something really cool about the way that he's doing that. 
Um, I might agree with you, Brevin. I don't know if it's as effective in the supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be empathetic towards. In a supposedly fun thing, I suppose there, I think, the, frankly, the times I was most empathetic with him was when he was discussing kind of his, the more odious characters. Um, so Mr. Dermatitis, uh, whose actual name I forget, um, and just kind of the... Uh, he has this list of kind of the weirdos that you see on the the cruise um and it did kind of teleport me to i don't know we've all been to those various social functions where there's just people that are odd and that most of us polite citizens just kind of well politely ignore and just kind of pretend don't exist and he he brings them up as as almost these kind of like jesters within the uh the cruise experience but i would say present characters yes or rivals yes. Yeah, I mean, and they, they do kind of act as foils for the crews to kind of show there's something oddly uncanny uh, about it, even within this uh, this kind of idealized scenario. Um, but also, like, him describing his table mates, most of whom he liked, there was something almost endearing about their simplicity um, that I did have some amount of feeling towards. Not a ton, admittedly, definitely not as much as Mrs. Thompson's. But there was some amount of, no, these are just kind of like people in their mid-50s who are just they're on a cruise and they just want to have fun and that's that it's kind of simple and you almost like you almost appreciate just kind of the naivete that that they have um but i think also maybe one of the functions that we don't feel so empathetic is that he has few characters within uh supposedly fun thing most of it's describing the setting not as much the characters yeah and like captain video so i guess my my sort of question is for steven and, and Liv throughout his other non-fiction in addition so like even like big red sun up simba other ones do you think he successfully embodies what he calls for in this is water as his narrator or not up simba i would say probably in that you could tell he admired the sincerity um of certain moments within mccain's campaign slash it was always he was always calling back to that moment uh in, in vietnam uh and he he regarded that as true sincerity but i guess now that i think about it his thesis in this is water it, it really is more about attention or about being kind of aware and realizing that you're not the center etc and i would say probably none of his characters in up simba and not himself um, and I would say similar in Big Red Sun. Big Red Sun, he does have this grudging admiration for the lack of irony. Um, but that's also lack of irony. That's it, that is one of his projects. But that's I don't think one of his projects in um, uh, this is water. The the thesis of paying attention to things I think is pretty dominant through his nonfiction. But this this turn towards empathy towards um, putting yourself in the position of the characters, I think is most effective in his fiction. And surprisingly, I actually think the view from Mrs. Thompson's um has a little bit even though it is a memoir it, it is drawing from fictional elements not from non-fiction elements he's not writing uh an essay he's not writing trying to write an academic article in the way that he does with the supposedly fun thing i'll never do again it is it is much more meant to be narrative i think it's got a narrative structure and that narrative structure is the thing that draws the empathy out of it and so that's um, for me, what makes it such an effective piece is, even though it's technically nonfiction, it's very narrative, um, and that's what gives me um, the uh, the motions that I do at the end. So then, with all that uh, in mind, and maybe a, an inkling of what good fiction should should be doing, uh, let's talk about bad fiction. And basically, this extended interview, uh, which uh, the thesis 
what's the thesis, Stephen? What are what are our, our big points here? Basically, the the reason I br- I brought this one up, I think the thesis is given in um, one of his lines earlier in the uh, the interview, um, in which he says, "quote Look, man, we'd probably most of us agree that these are dark times and stupid ones, but do we need fiction that does nothing but dramatize how dark and stupid everything is?" End quote. And so this is an interview with uh, Larry McCaffrey, who admittedly I don't know much about, uh, but basically they're talking about philosophy of storytelling, um, philosophy of narrative. Um, one of the things, one of the tangents they go on is um, American Psycho, uh, which I wasn't aware until I read the, uh, this interview. But I, I thought it was just a movie. Apparently, it's based on a book. Um, embarrassing, I know. Uh, but basically, he levels the accusation at American Psycho that it's pretty much cruelty for cruelty's sake. Um, it's pretty much like you read it and you're like, yeah, how stupid is everything? How how cruel and sadistic is the world? And it's it's just kind of pure deconstruction, pure power games, pure everything is just kind of dark and evil. And he, while at the same time wanting to do the classic art disturbs the comforted and comforts the disturbed, he, he thinks there is truth within that, but he also rejects this idea that, and therefore all we do is disturb people. Um, he actually does want to be driving at some sort of moral vision. Um, and that's where uh, you get a lot of this um, in this in this particular interview. There's something about the effect that uh, uh, a lot of the fiction he's talking about is meant, simply meant to be tantalizing, right? So I'm going to give you uh, the um, a disturbing horror kind of graphic porn, this kind of like, oh, look at this person cutting off these limbs or whatever. Um, and I think that can take a lot of different forms. Um, I actually just read um, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and I hated it. I thought that was awful. Um, and it was just kind of this like, oh, can you imagine like a drug trip for six months? And it's like not understanding. Sure, you're giving you're putting me into this experience, but it, it, it's meant to just simply just be tantalizing. It's not it's it's not pushing towards um, what I think you're right, comforting the disturbed or disturbing the comforted. It, it has none of that feel. It's simply like, oh, can, how much how much crazy things can I can I fit into a narrative? And it's um, maybe fun. But that's it. And I think that's what I think he's pushing towards in this essay is fiction is not simply meant to be just fun, right? There has to be some other purpose towards um, towards the writing. It, it's not just, though, that that he's saying that fiction's not supposed to be fun because there is the he's very much and, and this whole essay is densely packed with references to authors that I have never read. And if I had to guess, have fallen out of fashion as most modern fiction does. Uh, but he is going through sort of this this large catalog with the with the interviewer talking about the project of fiction that he and his fellow young writers at the time have inherited from the previous generation of you know modernists postmodernists speaking specifically in the literary fiction genre those those movements um but i do think that the points are generally cross applicable, like the the philosophy of these fiction writers, you could say trickles down, trickles across, moves right alongside with, you know, if, if we want to talk about um, uh, if we want to talk about Truman right alongside other moves towards expressive individualism or however you want to to categorize the shifts in in sort of public consciousness, the oh, there's a German word that I'm not going to try and pronounce. Uh, but his point gestalt Sittlichkeit. Stick the tight, thank you. Um, uh, and 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 he's talking about these fiction writers, and his point is just that they were revolutionary in their time, and they've broken all these rules, and they you know pushed the envelope, and they did crazy things, they did exciting things, they wrote things that had never been written that were scandalous. Um, and in his view, 
which I, we can sort of set aside whether or not uh, those things, the rules that were broken were right to be broken. Um, his, his point, though, is just that kind of in the point where he's sitting, all of the rules have been broken. All of the things that we're supposed to take seriously have been made ironic. All of the things that we're supposed to keep things w within the boundaries, you can keep going further and further, but it's just the horizon. There's nothing there further impeding your path, so you're just getting crazier and crazier with no actual purpose. And he has this great line that I think you've talked about in the past, Stephen, talking about the era of writers, and, and he sees it basically as, as orphans, and they're super happy because the the parents are gone. They can throw a party. It can be a, a rager. But then, you know, at some point during this this crazy party, you realize that there's, you know, cigarette burns on the couch and everyone's drunk and throwing up all, all over the carpet and everything's getting broken and, and, and spilled. And even though, you know, it's this great party and you're the host, you still have to live here after the party's over. Uh, and you wish that your parents weren't actually gone, but then you realize that they're never coming back. And that's that's the world that he sees himself as a fiction writer. But I think, I mean, pretty cross applicable to a whole number of different ways of thinking about uh, whether it's politics post-Cold War, whether it's the state of philosophy and ethics, whether it's, um, you know, fiction TV movies or uh, the state of our churches. It's a cross applicable point. Yeah, there's there's something very real about his analogy of the the children and the parents and the children just wanting to throw a party um and i i think i would send the um the metaphor to something just kind of generic rebellion that like kids want to rebel and we humans kind of want to rebel and it's fun to rebel when you know the thing you're rebelling against is actually secure so you get to stick your middle finger up to the establishment you get to yell at your parents and say i hate you etc cetera, etc cetera. but like the only reason you're willing to yell at your parents and tell them i hate you is because you know that like they're going to take care of you regardless. Um, and it does seem over the last hundred years, and this is where David Foster Wallace starts getting more and more concerns. Like we've said, I hate you over and over again. We've stuck up our middle finger at the establishment over and over again. We've yanked the floorboards out over and over again, missing one floorboard, no big deal. Missing five floorboards, no big deal. We're eventually taking the entire house apart because the establishment must go. And we want to show how, how strong we are without it. Okay. Well, when the house starts falling apart, where do we go? Um, and I think that's where he kind of comes in with the party of like, the party's still going on. Maybe, maybe we need to grow up and stop. Um, and so I, that, that is a line that I, I ever so often think back to. Um, and there's something kind of dangerous about just transgression for the sake of transgression. Shakespeare transgressed plenty. I mean, he broke all the rules because he knew exactly what rules he was breaking. And he, he was a genius enough to know which ones to break and which ones to stop. It's just kind of a frightful thing when we have a culture that's kind of predicated on everyone acting like that. There's a, a, a really interesting analogy by Samuel Beckett that I think applies. He viewed life as a chess game. Um, but, um, and I really like this idea of um, humanity is playing chess against nature um, and we're, we're consistently making moves. And what's really cool about chess is you actually cannot take back moves. Once you make a move, you've actually predetermined, you've set, off boundaries on the possible moves that could be played next. You can only play a certain amount of moves now. Now, for a long time, that's infinite. But what, what becomes really interesting is as you play the game, you keep on going and making moves, fewer and fewer pieces are on the board and actually becomes more um, statistically probable that you can predict the end. Um, I think, what, what are we at now? I think it's if there are only seven pieces left on the board, you can, the it is determined every single possible outcome with seven pieces. Um, you know what, how the game will end. Um, and so for Samuel Beckett, his 
his actually conclusion was um, we're getting really close to the end game in humanity's history, which that there's like something like really dangerous about this. Like we actually don't have many moves left. Um, so I think what you're kind of talking to is um, these people that broke the rules, they made specific moves and they kind of made these really crazy moves. And now we're kind of stuck with the results. We actually can't take them back. We have to figure out how to play this game. Previously bad moves. That really links into our, I mean, the whole project that we're doing here, right? Is like, that's kind of the point that Taylor makes and McIntyre kind of skirts around it. Um, though he sh- it's his big, it's his big flaw, I'd say, but Taylor makes that, McGillicus makes that for sure, is that we've, we're now here, we're now in this modern moment and we've gone through the enlightenment, we've gone through the loss of, I mean, community, but also the loss of like a shared um, imaginary. And now we need to play with, like like you were saying, Liv, I love that, we need to play with these pieces, um, the few that we have left, which maybe that's part of metamodernism's charge. I mean, because you, you the article that you sent also mentions like a key part of it is environmentalism and like progressive ideas of justice. And I would, my initial question about metamodernism is where is the basis? Because like standard progressivism, you've got bases in Marxism, you've got it in social Darwinism, you've got these ideas that at least have some kind of direction behind them and and see society as constructing something. And my initial hesitation with the metamodernist idea is where is it getting that? Um, but it seems to be getting that almost like from a um, from like a self-evident critique of uh, our current situation, which interestingly connects it back to these thinkers like Taylor McGillicrist, who are looking at the pieces that we have and trying to move forward. There's an interesting almost alliance to be found there, which I mean, that's that's interesting. I would I would be actually very curious to explore this space a bit more and understand how there might be points of synthesis with the new communitarians, the virtue ethicists trying to reclaim something from the past about how to make prudential decisions moving forward as a society. And also these metamodernists who are really looking and seeing the failure of society and are open to um I guess cracking down on this party, cracking down on the um, way the, the 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 baseless tendencies that we have now. There might be a potential synthesis there. Um, there are obviously obvious problems, but I'd be curious to see if there's actually potential um, for a, an alliance. So before we jump right into metamodernism, I do want to close out good old DFW, make sure that he gets his due. Uh, I would say that it's pretty obvious that one of the worst moves, maybe akin to a hung rook uh, would be letting the peasants learn how to read. I think we're all on the same page there. We but we can't take that back, unfortunately. There's no undo button on on that move. Um, but to move in, uh, sorry, to to rather to to close out David Foster Wallace, I do just have to talk about very very briefly uh, his math and philosophy nerd phase, from which he then emerged from a cocoon into the beautiful fiction and nonfiction butterfly that we most know him as. But he was originally, Stephen, much like you, you know, uh, a, a, a little math inchworm. Um, and I mean, so for my first question is, how is your novel coming along? My second question is, he talks about something about calculus and uh, wasn't invented for a long time because people assumed you couldn't divide by zero. Can you explain this to me? Oh, yeah, I was looking at that section. Um, So... 
basically the idea of calculus is you have a some sort of curve and you want to take the slope of that curve and slope is traditionally defined as rise over run right we will think back to you know intro to algebra or whatever and that that's what a slope is how much does it increase over how much or in one direction versus how much does it increase over another direction the idea behind calculus is that you make those differences, the difference in the X direction versus the difference in the Y direction, um, or rather rise, difference in Y, run, difference over X. So difference over Y over difference over X, you make that distance shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter approaching and shorter, zero. approaching zero. Eventually, like you, because if you want to get, to at, if you want to get the slope at a particular point, that difference is zero. It's zero over zero. And that is nonsensical until you get the idea of a limit. And limits are what, what saves you there. So what is the difference as, as the different, what is the slope as the difference approaches zero? I think maybe this whole modernism, metamodernism project would be well served by the idea of limits, but that might be a conversation for just a minute from now. Uh, anyway, uh, so my, my final observation on, on David Foster Wallace, then we'll give everyone a chance just to, to talk briefly. Uh, there's, there's one other uh, brief passage in this, in this interview where he's talking about this, this early time, um, focusing on math and philosophy, but specifically sort of like syntax-laden theology, so uh, Wittgenstein and, and, and all that. And he talks about, it, it, it's quite interesting, and it's very evocative of um, McGilchrist, because he's, he's, he's talking about this, uh, he, he says, a special sort of buzz, uh, mathematical e experiences. And you can very much see hearing in that uh, just hyper left hemispheric focus. And then that also, I think, comes out at least in his nonfiction and the hyper analysis of it and also the self-consciousness sort of like going about the world while, while holding like a full uh, wall length mirror above your head at all times. And that's how you see the world. And I think it's interesting. It's not something one should wish to emulate ultimately. And that his, his, his call in This Is Water is maybe, from what I can tell at least, the best, th the best thing that he learned, but maybe unfortunately never quite or sorry, that, that, that he learned what should be done, but that he never could quite do himself, which is a tragedy. Often the biggest criticism of David Foster Wallace is um, the way he approaches life is just what a lonely, depressed person would do. Which, I mean, ultimately, that was kind of what he was. Sadly, a lonely, depressed person. And so it was him, a genius, lonely, depressed person trying to navigate this absurd world that we're in um all i would say is um so so part of the kind of the anxiety and the and the hyper encyclopedic um approach that he has towards life um sometimes uh for a lot i would say for actually the majority of people is actually um not relatable and that's maybe um it, there's there's probably something something to that and i'm i'm not sure necessarily how much more I can say about that unfortunately it's relatable to me and maybe that just says something more about um, who I am as a person, and and maybe that's why it resonates with you, Stephen, or something like that. But unfortunately, there are a group of us out there that maybe do relate to being that lonely, depressed person, um, and that's where he's um, trying to speak to those people, saying like, "I empathize with with you." Um, that's the, maybe a better the the the, the most charitable reading I can uh, way I can approach that critique. Yeah, maybe that is why it um, kind of hit me so hard, especially when I was um, kind of out early in Seattle and still trying to find my way. I think that's why a lot of, frankly, like a lot of young men kind of first thrust out into the the cruel, dark world really resonate with David Foster Wallace is because he's in a lot of ways speaking to them. 
Um, and I think there is certainly something to be said for that. Um, people who are trying to figure out their lives, especially when they're just post-college, um, they need someone to tell them, hey, it's going to be okay. You can commit something outside of yourself. You can be sincere. You don't have to be ironic. You don't have to push people away. Go believe the thing. Go do the thing. This is water. Um, and I think there's something very encouraging um, to, to be said about that because he never he never falls into... Well, it's funny because he uses plenty of cliches, but he he brings them about. He represents them in in such a way that really make them kind of sparkle and gleam with life um, and make them indeed life giving. So all that to say, I think that is one of the reasons why I really resonated so much with David Foster Wallace. I think he spoke kind of directly to me. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the less experienced ones with, um, with David Foster Wallace. I would say that I think that he's I, don't know, I find his encyclopedic way incredibly relatable as do I understand the side effects of that hyperanalysis just being like, you know, just you, you can't help but be depressed at the state of the state of things. And so I guess I kind of the question I have, it's a good thing I'm not going last year, but the, the question I have is like, can you get out, right? You trap yourself, in, you, you're of this hyperanalysis of every experience. I'm not fully convinced. I'm more convinced now than I was at the start of this recording, but I'm not fully convinced that you can really get out of that of that hall of mirrors of that of that constant analysis. And I mean, we know that he was not able to work his way out of it, and that's that's concerning. And so I think that you still need some kind of some something else, and I don't know exactly what that is at this moment, but. That'd be my that would be my concern with his philosophy. Uh, however, I think it's essential to get broken out of our modern state as he does so effectively um, in order to drive his readers towards um, a, a better a better way of living. Perhaps one step further, but not far enough. And he knows it as well. And he was always searching for that next step. Uh, but your overarching concern, uh, Sam, uh, will go unanswered because you were the last person. And perhaps the answer, the answer to this uh, conundrum that we find ourselves in, is there a way out? Uh, I don't know. Liv, is it metamodernism? Well, metamodernists would certainly believe so. They would definitely say that that is the answer and that David Foster Wallace was taking them on that journey and that he just didn't have enough uh, information to articulate it well. Um, that's what all these metamodernist guys are going to say. Uh, do you want me just to go right into it? Okay. So, uh Metamodernism is a fairly new phenomenon. Um, uh, in the past 20 years, there's been a lot of things trying to figure out what's going on after postmodernism because not everybody is doing the um, the ironic, uh, did you catch my reference kind of jokes anymore. Like we're actually trying to, uh, in our media, trying to give some form of sincerity, trying to tell people actually there are better ways of living than just being ironic all the time. Um in the research that I've done, there are like 15 different theories. However, the one that has definitely caught the most ground is called metamodernism. Um, and that is, uh, meta is a reference actually to uh, Snow Crash and uh, by Neil Stevenson. And also kind of funny, uh, um, recently, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, right, has taken the meta and applied it to his company, right? So good for him so he's trying to be cutting edge or whatever um so with metamodernism the uh, uh two things first metamodernism uh identifies the problems and then tries to put forward what it thinks its solutions are so it says the three problems with the current world are environmental change um inequality and then alienation of the self um one question that i might have it would be something like which ones did david foster wallace 
um, engage with and maybe just alienation of the self. Um, and maybe some others, but that's, that's the one that seems the problem that he was dealing with the most. Um, and then metamodernists, they believe their political solution to this problem are, are five specific points. Um, and this is, this is Hansi Freinacht from, from, uh, Sweden, from their, uh, their, um, small political metamodern party that's over in Sweden. And uh, this is the, the Nordic ideology, I think, is the book that he wrote. And he says, these are the five solutions. You have to have an awareness of your allergies, which is recognizing why certain ideas are abhorrent to you, and then figuring out what's actually truthful and, and effective in those repulsive ideas. You have to have a belief in progress, is number two, that we can get better as a society. You have to believe that there are hierarchies, that they are good, even though they can be abused, you have to have some kind of set of um, things are better than other things. You don't have to believe in a best, right? That's the uh, that's the modern notion of having a meta narrative where everything is pointing towards this is the the ultimate understanding. Um, Metamodernism says there's no best, but there is better. You have to say one thing is better than another thing. Um, you always have to be aiming at reconstruction. That's number four. That's there are practical solutions that can be found. Um, and lastly, um, as you were as you were saying, uh, uh, Sam, there needs to be some kind of synthesis. And I thought uh, that was really nice how you're bringing in um, McIntyre and maybe McGilchrist. And there needs to be a meeting of the minds that comes together where all of these people uh, that are brilliant need to be able to work together to solve these problems because no individual person has has the solutions of themselves. Um, I, th I think the uh, metamodern community often says about 10% of every theory is correct, which I thought that that was like a, a bonkers number. But uh they're going with 10% of things are correct and that we just need to gather all the 10% together and mush them all together. And that's how we're going to have um, brilliance and, and moving forward together as a society. Um, um, that's what, I, that's, that's a, the briefest I can do for the MetaMonitor project. So I have three quick follow-up questions. Maybe you can just do like a, a quick, 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 quick answer. Uh, one is uh, why this topic? Uh, two is what's the, sort of what's the mission creep because theoretically this this starts off as a philosophical project is was my understanding and now it's a little bit broader than that so like where where are we now in terms of like areas that we're that, that we're colonizing with metamodernism uh and three what is your personal commitment to this because that will change how i talk about it <laughs> Um, so the, just why did I even bring this up? Well, partly because I think David Foster Wallace is one of the guys that was first engaging with metamodernism, gaining, um, maybe I should rephrase this, was David Foster Wallace was one of the first guys that understood that postmodernism was not viable in society any longer and that there needed to be a new way to approach the problems of contemporary America. And I think he was the one that kind of started dealing with the alienation of the self and is like, you know, we're really isolated and depressed. We got to figure out a solution to that. And so he was like one of the first guys that kind of jumped on that project. And that's that is has carried forward as being one of the tenets of the problems that metamodernism seeks to solve. Um, so he was he was um, foremost in that. Question number two was what areas have we colonized? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, metamodernism, I believe, has started off as an uh, uh, aesthetic theory. It was actually more with uh, arts. Um, this idea of uh, we can't just make toilet bowls anymore. That's, that doesn't count as art. We actually have to do something different. Um, so that was, it started off um, in that sense. And first definitions were that metamodernism is just an oscillation between modernism and postmodernism, that you're somehow just reflecting back and forth between like a tennis game. 
Um, uh, and then it has moved actually into a political project and then actually moved into a philosophical project. So the, the first philosophy book was actually just written two years ago by Jason Anyata Josephson Storm, the metamism, metamism, the future of theory. Um, and then he puts forward how he thinks uh, the philosophical understanding of metamodernism can be, uh, can be accomplished. Um, the arts, I think, are where it has infected culture most predominantly. Um, for me, that's like music like the 1975 or um, the Inside Out by Bo Burnham, I think, is really, really metamodern. Um, he's really trying to uh, deal with these problems of uh, alienation of the self, inequality, and then climate change. And the last question is, do I, oh yeah, do I care? Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm uh, agnostic right now. Okay, great. Because at first blush, this all just sort of seemed like philosophically amnesic nerd shit, but like, like basically <laughs> like the Andrew Yang of ideas, which is not a compliment. But uh, sorry, let's 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 give it its its best possible case. I I mean, first off, be best possible case is, and in the other corner is postmodernism, which does think that a toilet bowl is art. So I mean, sure, maybe it's the generic Andrew Yang of politics. But I don't know. It's going up against, uh, I don't know, drooling three-year-olds. So I'll take that over postmodernism. Uh, Metamodernism would also say that we're actually fighting against some resurgences of modern thought, and that's going to be um, Marxism. This Marxism is not postmodernist. It's really modernist. We have a narrative, and the narrative is power structures, and that we're we're in a class battle, and that is still coming kind of up in our culture. And metamodernism is kind of like that's not the way to view life. We have to have a much more complex understanding that life isn't just about power and race. Um, it's it's more complicated. So I, I'm on the side of metamodernism. If it's if I'm choosing between two, I'm with you, Steve. I was just gonna say, like, I, I I think that maybe I come down there. So maybe it's three and one. I don't know, but it's like I guess if you compare it with most other popular, I, I don't like pop culture or like uh, culturally relevant beliefs. I, I mean, I'm, I'm using both those terms um, nauseatingly, but like. A, a belief that can actually really catch it all, catch on with the um, culture at large. I really feel like meta, meta modernism might have the potential. I mean, um, first of all, all these all these writers are hugely popular and popular with people across the political spectrum. I mean, David Foster Wallace is respected by conservatives and progressives. I look at other ones like Zadie Smith, who is a renowned, very progressive writer, also like one of my wife's favorite authors and writes some amazing stuff too. So it's like, there's there's potential here is what, is what I'm saying. And I, and I guess I go back to my earlier point about there being a possible point of synthesis. I, I wouldn't, I don't know, Brevin, maybe, maybe you can expand more on the point of it just kind of being the, uh, like you're, you're discussed with it. Cause I, I'd love to hear more about why you don't think it necessarily functions in any kind of, in any kind of way. I agree it doesn't have a basis, but what, what other thought does, I mean, that, that's not really a standard that excludes a, a, a an idea from being, um, being, uh, acceptable. Or effective. That's very metamodern. That's very metamodern of you to think so. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I, I would say that the, um, uh, perhaps the, the first thing that I did notice that it has going for it is, uh, this author that you sent us the book review of, Jason Josephson Storm, uh, right? You know, it, it has a quote from him saying that his intention is to philosophize with lightning, and then it gives it a little 
you know, the citation, which is in parentheses, Storm 5, which I mean, like, that's just an unfair advantage when you're writing, if you're just going to be doing that. Like, like that's that's not even fair to people with, with like, you know, boring last names. Like, come on. That is incredibly um, meta, is, is what it is. This this is see and this is here's here's this like this this is this seems like the the philosophy of of people who are on Twitter too much is like the 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 short version of it is so I can't speak to the fiction side of it that's that is a side of it that that I don't have a opinion on and I'm sure I would based on what I'm hearing I would like their fiction better than like full postmodern or like this, like that they theoretically like David Foster Wells are reacting to things that they don't like. I would appreciate that as a political project. It all sounds incredibly naive. Like it's like it was born two seconds ago and it's pretending that history hasn't happened. And also that uh, the political solution is like, what if people agreed with me and I were also in charge? Wouldn't that solve all of our problems? Like reading the description of, of, of the book and like, what if everyone was just like empathetic and we all agreed on green environmentalism and then we were all just subsets of that? It's like, okay, what? Like, you just like have dissolved all of human history bonds and, you know, I, I, to be fair, he was that, that's like the Nordic case, but that that's the kind of sort of political imagination that you have. Like, the thing that came to mind, feel free to talk me out of this, is, you know, mm -hmm. Andrew Yang being asked, okay, so what is your solution to gun control? And he's like, I think there are consensus solutions then we can have consensus problems and there are common sense solutions that we can all come together and agree on. And it's like, no, we can't. Okay. You just have to deal with that fact sometimes. Like I said, willing to be disabused, but that is my impression of this so far. Here's my quick attempts at disabusing you of this. So the idea of uh, the uh, integral theory of like everyone is 10% right. And we just kind of need to mishmash. This sounds like, and maybe this is a naive view of it, this sounds like the classically liberal pro project of let the marketplace of ideas reign free. Let's go, let's let's talk it out. You bring up your ideas, I bring up mine, and we're going to hash it out. And hopefully, in the midst of that hashing it out, we'll come up with something that suits maybe not everyone, but most people. And hopefully, we'll get to the most optimal solution possible. And that, maybe I'm being overly optimistic or overly naive, but that seems more the project of metamodernism. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, it seems like a way out of the gridlock, right? I mean, Brevin, I, I think I agree with you that like, no, we can't agree on on many issues, but there are some that we can agree on. I think that that's the project of metamodernism is trying to get at like, where do we see these obvious things that we can make progress on? And um, and I don't know, I mean, it, it's it, I, I appreciate its willingness for, for I think compromise more than anything else as somebody who doesn't agree with a lot of its ideas. I mean, a lot of the substantive ideas that it's pushing for. I don't know. I just, I, I see it as a lot that like, I see it as a lot better than Marxism. I see it as a lot better than, than complete, than a tribal gridlock. Uh, and it seems like, I don't know, maybe there's, wait, we'll see how this little party goes in, uh, in Sweden, yeah. but it seems like there's some kind of consensus here. So I sorry. That. Yeah, I, I mean, the the part of the counter argument would be is that if you're saying, all right, so should we have metamodernism or Marxist revolutionaries, you know, throwing everyone on, on Wall Street from the top of their roofs, like, okay, yeah, metamodernism sounds pretty good. Uh, like, that's, that, that's not a difficult argument to make. I, I also do wonder if there's, like, 
sort of because of this sounds like an intensely academic project. This sounds like something that is written by ac academics for academics. This doesn't sound real. This doesn't sound like something that exists huh. in real life, that there's any kind of popular anything for that. This is purely people in their ivory towers thinking about how we can best arrange our in, in an Andrew Yangian sense. How can we write a, a political party with no actual beliefs, but that has but that is on the right side of every 70 30 issue? Uh, somehow, some somehow you you draw that line. And then the little bits of it that I pull out that I pulled out from the article that sort of like I simultaneously appreciate the honesty, but it concerns me in the application. Like there's a if from the review, uh, it says, quote, scholarship in the metamodernist view should be openly and unabashedly political, providing the knowledge and inspiration behind future political action, end quote. That's incredibly not classically liberal whatsoever ever in the sense that it's basically motivated. It's like just pure motivated reasoning. Um, and the idea of the actual search for truth is not the question. It, 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 it does seem like an exercise of power. Maybe I'm, that's an uncharitable reason. Like I could see, you should say we should engage in politics. The charitable version would be something like personal knowledge and like you should commit to the beliefs that you have, argue them passionately so that the best idea can win. But I don't, I don't see the metamodernism having any conception of compromise or losing. It seems like it's we will find the right answers and force everyone else along with it. That's my impression because we're academics and we know better. Live, yeah. Why am I wrong? Uh, no, the you're you're sort of right. Um, the the idea is that um, because in the marketplace of ideas, what's really important that's going to happen is not that one idea will surface, but that there actually needs to be synthesis. It's very Hegelian. Um, this uh, where we're going to have two conflicting ideas, and what we need to do is find the synthesis that everyone will agree on. And and I get that maybe um, in some cases. People will say, well, there can't be some kind of agreement um, where the metamodernist is going to say, no, we just haven't tried hard enough. We can find a solution. That's that belief in progress um, that, they're, that they're really hoping for is, no, there actually is something. You just don't have enough people that are moving up toward it. I know this is going to sound so, so academic. I retire. You're so right. Um, they will make the comments. Only like 2 to 3% of the population can even think on this level right now. And it's really funny that they make that comment. Um, and they're saying, we just need to keep on pulling people up until the majority of the population can think on this level. Right? We just have um, people are getting smart. And uh, shoot, I'm, I've already forgot what the uh, um, what's that study about uh, IQ where our the average IQ has actually been increasing. So 100 now is actually like 110 back in 1900. So the average person is actually consistently getting smarter. It's actually really fascinating the way that's happening. Um, you just have to keep on going because people will get smarter. That's that's the belief. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll bet IQ tests measure specifically things related to the left hemisphere and a particular kind of abstract academic knowledge, which is just to say that we're digging our own graves is what that <laughs> is what you just told me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's the part that can, Revan, I agree with your concerns there about the political about it or, and how, at least in this book review, it's phrased as being inherently political. That's not the idea I got from like the, the both nonfiction David Foster Wallace and fiction Zadie Smith that I've read. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be inherently political. And my, my, it was my very early understanding here is that it starts, it, it, it's supposed to start at least in a narrative. And by starting like a narrative and, and, and aesthetic, I don't know, that's what to me, it seems like you're, you would avoid that problem if that were indeed the case. Um, maybe this spells doom to this philosophical theory where the first, the first real hefty philosophical work on it actually shoots the rest, the, the, the uh, most popular 
and effective uh, works in the foot by saying they aren't political enough. But that would be my first point there. And then also one more that one, it may, might dissuade you. I don't know. Probably won't. But one, the one other optimistic point for me here is that it maintains a an understanding of authority and hierarchy, which I think is is very important. And it seems to be almost a way to re inject the idea of, hey, maybe we actually like live in a society and are not isolated individuals and don't just exist for ourselves by ourselves, but actually we're all living together. And that, I don't know, that that's that's a huge, huge step um, out of the modern and postmodern ideas. So I don't know, does that, does that, does that, uh, pull you in I mean maybe authority saying that maybe maybe you might have the authority does that give you any kind of uh affection towards it it's a very Petersonian point uh hierarchy's good however I would be compelled to ask in the spirit of Alistair McIntyre uh whose hierarchy which values are in said hierarchy and theoretically I think they would say that that we could hash it all out I do think metamodernism is what David Foster Wallace uh would have hoped to see. I think he would have still been critical of it, but I think this is, he was hoping for someone to articulate a vision for the future out of postmodernism. And these people have done an articulation. I don't know if he would have been satisfied, um, but this is, this is what we have. So this, I, this is the next move is what I am, I am perceiving. And um, I am, I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you, Sam. I think there's, uh, these are really good allies. And so I want to, I want to, I want to partner. I, I think that's kind of where I'm at. Like I, I'm agnostic personally, but I, I want to partner with the, the best allies that I have. And this is all I've found in the Academy when I was at Wayne state university mm. that, I, that I found to be meaningful. I'm, I'm curious actually if um, the book review did kind of open it with metamodernism is inherently political. It must start as political. Um, it, there was lots of political charge, do you think that is an, an accurate representation of metamodernism or is that this one reviewer's take on metamodernism? It's definitely Ponzi Freinacht's view of metamodernism and it's this reviewer's. I would actually not say that that's actually what the book is doing. The book is not meant to be as political as I think the the review the review stated. Um no, the, the book is, is is fascinating. I don't know how much how much time. I'll try to do as brief as I can. But I think the best thing that he comes up with is the idea of social kinds, uh, which is um, meant to be uh, meant to be a reflection of um, the way we cat way we categorize species in biology. But we can just do that same thing with ideas. Um, and I thought that that was really brilliant. This idea, like no species species classification, is actually kind of this really difficult ask when you get this new jaguar where do you put it in the panthrae in the panthrae phylum or not the phylum uh the class right you have the order in the class of panthers i don't know where to put it right you have to find this new kind of species thing um and species classification can change over time as you gain new facts about the panther like i don't know where the spot how large the spots are or if the colors alternate in certain ways um we can start doing that with ideas things like race or gender, right? We can, we can find ways to actually take those terms and find new social classes, social kinds, um, and classify them under new species. And that can actually be beneficial to society. Um, so I would say one of the things that our current culture is doing right now is, is redefining, is re-speciating terms like man and woman. And I think there's some good that's coming along with that, right? The idea that men don't cry. Um, that was maybe an old species classification. And we've kind of gotten out of that and said, uh, no, maybe we need to 
man into a new species. It doesn't that that is not one of the markers for manhood anymore. And so we need to reconceptualize our understanding. And maybe I think that's kind of been a meta modern move. That particular version of it, I think, is good. However, I think it has gone out of control in, in some other areas, right? And so I'm not I'm not for the whole project of redefining everything. But this is where metamodernism is really helpful. Is no, we're not we're not saying everything is just a linguistic turn and everything is is subjective because of uh, because of language games. It's not that. It's this. No, um, we use language in particular ways, and that can actually help us redefine terms better. I think that's a that's an interesting and more I guess like. It's still charged, but that's that's that has less of a instinctive stink of failure than the politics description does um, to me. Uh, I am I am trying to be very charitable. I I, I would say that the um, I guess the counterpoint though would just be what one would argue has always been there, which is just return. Uh, and I mean, even the David Foster Wallace, this is water talking about the purpose of a liberal ed- education. There's a great a great quote from a book that I've read recently is that the purpose of the liberal arts education, much as David Foster Wallace would say, it's not to make you well-rounded, like a ball bearing, just like tearing through life. The the point is to make you understand the full breadth and depth of the human experience, including encounters with God, and to allow you to live in the present as if it's, you know, the twilight morning of eternity, I think is the quote, which I just, is, is so striking. And men don't cry is a term. One way that you can get there is by recategorizing things and breaking down hierarchies in, in potentially unpredictable, d- destructive ways. I think the alternative is not to put a like specifically uh, religious point on it, or you can read the Bible and see that Jesus wept when either in the garden or when uh, or when Lazarus died. Both of those are like the, the content is there. Um, uh, it just needs to be embodied as opposed to sort of skipped over for what's the new the new thing that we can do what's the exciting what's after postmodernism is like what if we had something good actually back the other direction yeah that's really interesting i really like the way that you're saying that um um experiencing the imminent god is another way of um realigning realigning our understanding however i think most of our society doesn't experience an imminent god so how is a way that they can come to understanding? One, metamodernism actually seems to be like this really not interesting option of, um, yeah, using using kind of um, um, Hegelian synthesis to actually come up with maybe something approximating truth. That's that there, there's I don't yeah, but I understand I understand the critique. Um, I think that is one of the things that fascinated me so much with David Foster Wallace in the first place um, was the fact that he was so sorry. Um, oh, he's going. Okay, I'm just gonna redo that. I think that was one of the things that fascinated me so much with David Foster Wallace in the first place and kind of metamodernism writ large is this idea of commitment. Um, so yes, to the majority of our society um, and kind of to a, an increasingly secular culture, the idea of committing to God is perhaps just not quite doable, not quite feasible. Uh, David Foster Wallace himself tried um, to, uh, I think, convert to uh, Catholicism twice and quote unquote flunked out. Um, though viewed from Mrs. Thompson's house, he does discuss going to church, but there's always, he, there is some amount of that observer principle that, that we discussed that's in there. But in any case, his idea of committing, I, I found that even in the times when I did start thinking, well, is this whole God thing an actual thing? Is the religion really worth it? Et cetera, et cetera. That was kind of this buffet, this kind of secular argument that 
Okay, so even if you're being absurd right now, even if you're praying to nothing, just commit to it. Just do it. You're better off than not doing it. Um, and so I would argue for a society that has kind of rejected religion writ large, or rather is starting to reject it, I think metamodernism actually provides quite the allyship to a sincere religion of, look, even if you even if you you're ninety nine percent sure that you're that that there is no God or that this this thing is stupid, what if you're wrong? Like just maybe it'd be good for you. So maybe don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, yeah, I I think that is definitely the 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 value of metamodernism in, in the current culture. I I know from my personal experience, my in, in through my religious um, journey. Encountering God has been difficult. Um, it's it, it has not been uh, an easy road, and I have um, had a love hate relationship with in my in my religious experiences. And um, meta modernism feels like a really interesting, pragmatic answer uh, to the problem of um, religion. Sometimes uh, maybe being. Uh, feeling i'm trying to think how to sometimes just sucking it up and doing it based on faith feels too uh too dumb too uh it's it's too low iq or something like that like oh you just you have to be less smart and then you would understand or something like that um and uh no there i think there has to be uh a smart man's way to encounter God as well. And for the current generation, maybe this is a way to do it. It's almost a challenge to the, I mean, like the postmodern ideal is authenticity, right? Mm. And that is distinct from sincerity, mm. yeah. I would say. And so metamodernism is combating this idea that we have to be perfectly authentic to our deepest, truest, you know, most authentic selves. You just need to, you just need to let that out. And that needs to be what's, what, what you are metamodernism says no you need to give a sincere effort to what you want to be which like that is just i would say an infinite infinitely better way of going about the world um and shows i, I mean because i i i'm hard pressed granted very inexperienced here but it seems like i mean david foster wallace struggled with belief but he was a theist right he went to a Men mennonite church tried but he flunked out of the the, the RCA twice or something like that. So like he, he, he's trying to find something, but an utmost respect for religion. And that's, I mean, that's, we know a vital part of a, both a free society, but also a, um, a good society is, is respect for and, and the um, exaltation of religion. And I don't know, it, it seemed it, again, we keep, we keep coming back to this. We've been going on for over an hour at this point, just keep coming back to it's a good ally. It's a good ally, but maybe that's our conclusion. Yeah, I feel like you're you're nailing it, Sam, over and over again. I'm 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 really impressed that I feel like you haven't explo have that much exposure to metamodernism, but you're just like you're like grasping out like I get this. Hey, I, I mean I, I I've listened to 1975 for like for <laughs> six years and gone to two concerts, so like yeah. I, I'm I'm good here. And yeah, actually, I'm uh, pulling stuff of this from 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 that music, honestly. But that's separate yeah. anyway uh, i think you you nailed it with this uh this idea of um authenticity being real or something like that i think the, one of the problems of postmodernism I, I think you're totally right is there there's this huge critique on what is real and often um i think the answer that's often brought up in our society of what's real in our is now in our society is that which is like mind independent the stuff that um you the stuff that it doesn't need exposure or mediation through your mind. So like tangible things, right? The material world, that's, that's what's real. Right. And if you can't um, conceive of it outside of in your mind, 
they can't be real. And that's, that's exactly where, um, God and freedom and, um, weirdly, uh, um, I think race and sex and gender are getting thrown into that. Like, no, that's all mind dependent stuff. So it's not real. It doesn't matter. Um, but I like, I like where you're going with that. It's like, no, we can't throw all of that away. We actually need yeah. mind dependent categories that we are going to determine as real. And that's where that kind of social kinds comes in. Um, because uh, unfortunately, um, faith is not imminent for most people. Any final conclusions or should we transition from there? I just think it's cute that you guys are looking for allies. I'm already digging my moat. <laughs> you and your 11 kids in the St. Pius, the first homeschool uh, group. You know it. That is fascinating. The, the, that, that feels more Benedict option, right? That's the, 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 the play. And um, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to go there. I'm, um, I, yeah, maybe, maybe I am too optimistic or something like that. But One last try. <laughs> Which it, it is funny because I remember Brevin being among my friends. And I, to be fair, I'm not, I, I think Benedict option is fine it's jp fine um but then uh, brevin was like he laid probably the heaviest criticism on the benedict option when uh when he first read it i remember him just lambasting it no i no i i am the, the benedict option as roger project is bad the 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 idea that he fails to articulate well and takes it off in wrong directions uh there's a kernel there that's good but he does it poorly and when people do things poorly, it can make you angry. And when what? you're yeah. in... sorry, uh... go ahead. I'm already mad. <laughs> well, as loath as I am to cut off a good David Foster Wallace conversation, please see footnote one. Truth be told, if I uh, if we could keep going, I could be here all night. And if I could be here all night, I won't have time to get back to my midterm final that's due tomorrow at noon. So we need to move on. And when we need to move on, you can get angry. And when you get angry, sometimes you might want to rant. I do. Hey, Sam, do you have something to rant about? On this evening, my Uber Eats biker. I the reason I was late for this podcast is because my wife and I were folding our laundry and just uh, we were we were figuring out which of the numerous museums in in Rome we're going to visit here in a, in a few weeks. Um, I guess a couple weeks now, and it was it, it, we realized that we. Did not have time to make dinner, and so we ordered in Five Guys on Uber Eats, um, which is a classic for us. Uh, there's no Five Guys in our vicinity, and it says it's going to arrive by 8 p.m., which would give us a half hour to eat. Um, needed time with the amount of fries we were expecting. At 8, the Uber Eats driver is apparently on our block, and this uh, biker does not move for about five minutes, and then teleports, I want to say, like two miles down to Coney Island. And so I'm watching as this biker is going in circles, which you're not near that near close to Coney Island. I mean, they're going in circles down there, like in Russian Brooklyn. I call the driver and all he'll say is, I'm coming, I'm, I'm coming, I'm on my way. I'm like, I have a commitment at 830 here. What time are you going to arrive? I don't know, sir, I'm coming. So I watch him. Um, he ends up in a park, running in circles in the park and finally stops. I think now I've looked at the map near a public restroom, um, but it didn't matter uh, because at that point I had about 10 minutes before this podcast and I quickly whipped up a tuna fish salad on, on bread and that was my dinner. Um, and I'm just saying, okay, look, I understand the gig economy is hard, but I was a Jimmy John's delivery driver in college. I mean, and look, this was before uber eats this is before grubhub we were it was a phone system and an angry manager and we got those sandwiches delivered 
And if we were going to have a delay, we we had the number on the receipt. We'd call the customer and get them that sandwich complimentary. Um, and instead, we're eating cold tuna fish out here um, with just a reimbursement and a $10 next time we order never gift card. So thanks, Uber Eats. Um, I don't know how. I don't know how you manage this one. But anyway, that's my rant. I'm trying. I, I'm still baffled with what the plan was by this biker who was 20 minutes away saying they were going to get here. Anyway, that's it. And I'm hungry too. So I, let's end this because I need to eat second dinner after the sandwich. <laughs> All right. Well, we're hungry you know, for rant. I think Brent. I probably was ranty and uncharitable enough in the in the metamodernism section so i will defer mine to live yeah that is that's too kind um i you can cut this if you want to but i was told i was supposed to get a little bit uh, spicy for this rant um this is a little bit of my experience recently but i uh unfortunately have a thing what's the deal with catholic education i have uh, i'm currently uh, a, a teacher at a catholic school and I have been shocked by uh, how often the decisions of the administration are uh, in direct contradiction to the education of students. It has been shocking. It's quite possible that it's just this particular school. And I'm willing to accept that. But this school has been awful, where uh, they ripped down my whiteboard and didn't put a new one and just said, we'll get one in two years. That's their option. I'm shocked. They decided to do brickwork outside my building in September, not June, July, or August, September. Um, we don't have air conditioning, so I have to keep my windows open because it was too hot otherwise, which was not conducive to teaching in a class. It's been bonkers, and this is, those are just some of the uh, some of the things that have gotten in the way. Um, I think I figured it out, though. I think this particular school doesn't care about teaching skills to students. It cares about making good Catholics. Um, and I just, I'm not sure, um, that's, I'm not sure that's my call. <laughs> that's my rant. Now, no, Brevin, your, your wife used to work at a, a Catholic school, right? So. Yeah. But no, guys, yeah. guys, I just do have to say, Stephen and Sam, you guys are obligated to approve of this. Cause if at all possible, we do not want them to learn how to read. If there is any, like if it takes brick work in September, we will go there. We okay, are we'll Catholic to read. Or, or me and Stephen, we also don't want them to become good Catholics. So, the pro and con here, like no reading, good, good Catholic, bad. Perfect, perfect, perfect cool. Catholic school. School. That's great. Steven, take us home. <laughs> Gladly. All right. So a few days ago, I messaged Sam and Brevin, and I think I mentioned this to live that I have a rant indeed. And perhaps a bit of introduction is in order. So there are three large camps in the STEM field. There are the mathematicians, there are the physicists, and the engineers. Mathematicians are clearly the superior. They take base axioms and derive whole worlds in rather compelling and captivating manner. Physicists give interesting problems to mathematicians who develop these beautiful systems and theories that give a firm grounding to physical phenomena. Physicists then take these systems and abuse them, quite horribly, but all overlook it because they at least help develop the theory in the first place. Engineers, however, contribute nothing 
these degenerates instead take disjointed equations, hand wave how they got them in the first place, spoiler, from the physicists and mathematicians, take horrifying shortcuts, notate their work in such a way that would make a half-mad cubist painter blush, make estimates based on the examining the entrails of a slaughtered chicken, and then proceed to build entire cities based on their at best foggy understanding of how any of it works. It is nothing short of moment-to-moment -moment miraculous intervention that any of our buildings stand, pipes deliver water, or circuits carry electricity. Their psychotic version of math is to take magic functions plundered from the sacred texts of their betters, plug numbers in them, and then walk away with these results smugly like they accomplished something. Some say there's a rivalry between mathematicians and engineers. This is a gross misrepresentation I wish to clarify. The only rivalry that exists is the one akin to a major league baseball player getting annoyed with an eight-year-old little league right field substitute who stole his home run bat and smashed it into a tree repeatedly while claiming to be just as good as him. It is a chamber symphony being interrupted by a tone-deaf second grader attempting to whistle without his two front teeth, or a Nobel Prize laureate reading her poetry while, who is being cut off by the inane babblings of an illiterate teenager who thinks Panic at the Disco is the apotheosis of human achievement. In short, engineers are bad, engineers should feel bad, and I'm two truncated Taylor series away from declaring war, holy war on all of them. Uh, and with that... It still feels weird closing out this way, but for everyone here at the Prime Brand Podcast, I'm, I'm and I was a guest. And Wait, we will see you footnotes. in the next episode. So many footnotes and bandanas. Can we add, like, we'll listen to it and then, like, oh. add little sections within it that are <laughs> no. us annotating it? <laughs> Steven, if Please. you pay for someone to edit these, you can do that. But as long as I have to do it, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, what? Okay, uh, Sam. No one. What do you see? Metamodernism. Metamodernism. Because you're you're a politics guy. We 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 both know political yeah. theory. What about this? Dude. Is not just like I don't know, like branding. This, this, oh, it is this. branding. Oh, it's, okay. It's the, yeah, it's, 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 um, but I, I mean, I think if properly branded, I don't think that Storm's branding is correct. I think it's really? like Storm's branding is like the, um, Storm's branding is, let's see here, I'm trying to give like a proper analogy. Um, it's like Storm's branding is like the tea party to the, to the MAGA, right? It's mm. like the pre, it's, it's like, it's close. It's getting on something. It's it's trying to take take down our modern our modern world, but it hasn't quite gotten to where to to really what's going to take off. But I think he's hitting on something real here. Again, this is coming from a guy who like I I who I've always loved the 1975, <laughs> and and uh, and, and I never and I could never put my finger on why I like them so much, and so. And I'm like, yeah, there's there's something more going on here than just like boy band pop music. And I go to these shows where like probably 90% of the people there are there to see the boy band pop music. And I'm like, but no, there's something else here. And so this kind of put words to that. But uh, so that's what I mean. I, yeah, I think it's branding flat out. Um, but I don't I, I, I think it's branding with a couple with a couple key concessions to us conservatives that we need. Right. Because if you don't have the concessions of like authority existing and like uh like like communal responsibility mm -hmm. and and uh and even like the idea of maybe shared nationhood which i i think that you could really get out of this idea like if you if you eliminate those which the progressives have done like <clears throat> you're dead in the water there's nothing that can happen at that point and it so, seems like 
this can actually move something. Then again, yeah, so, I also didn't mind Andrew Yang, and I live in New York City, so you know what am I supposed to say? So, yeah. So so I mean I'm I, I'm mostly thinking about this through. Okay, so just just from what I can understand, and I think maybe this the article was sent because it was on the political side. That is why I'm having such a strong reaction to it. Like. As far as DFW being like a metamodern expression or like the expression of metamodernism, that sounds fine. That sounds like the aesthetically, it's better than a lot of other options that have any popular appeal. Obviously, I'd prefer something else. It's this whatever. It's the second or third best option. I'll take it over something else. In terms of the political project, though, like you're talking about hierarchies are good. We need to have authority. We need to have communal well-being. I think it's... I think the attempt to see it as an ally or a parasite, because it is more sort of inherently authoritarian than the current mm -hmm. viewing of politics as a sort of a contested battleground, because it's like, we will find the answer, and then mm. we will enforce the answer. And what I think that you'll actually get... But how is that different than current politics? Because it's inherently a give and take. First of all, I'm not concerned, because I don't think this would ever have any kind of popular appeal. So that's like the, the first half of it. But the second half of it is to any degree that it did catch on, the authority that you get under how it would actually be implemented is you just get more Dr. Fauci's and you just get more people mm. saying that you have to stay in your homes and you you have to wear a mask t today and you don't wear a mask tomorrow based on government mandates because because of communal well-being. Right. Like, I, I think we're already there. It's just another it, it, it just gives a some more helpful rhetoric to authoritarian tendencies that already exist. I don't see it. I don't see anything new. I, I just see branding of things okay. that already exist. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, 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 I don't think metamodernists would say that, but obviously why would they? So, yeah. um, yeah, well, no, I think, I think they would be, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I could see some of them definitely agreeing with that. So it's their critique. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, so I'd be interested if, if, if there's like another thing, even if it's longer, like I'm, I'm I'm curious, like it, the the whole synthesis thing, like it it jives with me. It would have jived with me a lot more a couple years ago. Yeah. Um. So, but but like I would be curious just to see more what they say on their own terms because I think maybe we're discovering that for whatever reason the way that this one article phrased it has intensely triggered me to have yeah. a negative reaction. Yeah. So I'm 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 willing to be dissuaded. So so feel free to to put other things in that uh, chat that we have. Um, if, yeah. if there's something you think that would make a case for it. Uh, the, the, the text right now is this one, the Joseph Storm, Storm one, Joseph Storm. Um, that's the, that is the philosophical one. The, I'm pulling a lot of pol political because the Hansi Franekt one is the political version of metamodernism, which funny actually came out three years before the philosophy. So it's kind of the, it's definitely, even, it's though the, yeah. even though the aesthetic, then the philosophy, then the political is how it's supposed to go, but correct. And that's no, not, yeah. That's not what no, it's supposed to be different. philosophy, political, or no, aesthetic, political, then philosophy, right? That is what happened, yes. Oh, that is what happened, okay. Yeah, yeah it was that aesthetic, then political, then philosophy. Um, Got it, okay. I, In my okay. mind, I would think the philosophy should have come before the political, but, yeah. but that, that isn't what happened. Right. But One that, would think. Yeah, it yeah, was a little bit surprising. He jumped the gun, I think, a little bit. Um, I, I would be really interested. Um, I, I would definitely do that, take a deep dive into this metamodernism book. Um, the you don't need to do that with the political text. That one doesn't need a full dive in. Like I, I gave you everything. So yeah. Yeah. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, honestly, the yeah, the doing a more like thorough examination of the philosophical underpinnings. I it is admittedly a little irritating that pol politics came first, and then they started yeah. like providing the the philosophical mm -hmm. like theoretical framework for it. That does seem a little bit yeah. chasing their own tail, uh, which admittedly does leave a bad taste in my mouth. But I mean, it's David Foster Wallace, so like I I have to, or it's a philosophy that's like undergirded by David Foster Wallace. So I mean, I'm I. I have to be open um, to the idea. Revan, how would you how would you think this interacts with like the uh what was what was James Reese Smog's philosophy? Was it it wasn't national conservative. He he had this you remember that that idea that we that we were into like five years ago? Um I'm trying to find it. Because I the Google, it was it was like that it was him and David Cameron and everybody in Britain was all into it. Oh but, yeah. I know what you're big society. Big society. That's it. How does this interact? So, how does this interact with big society? Because that's kind of what I'm getting from it. Is like these ideas of like, yeah, we're gonna like bring everyone together, and like we're fine with markets. We're not gonna burn those down. But also, like, let's go solve climate change. And also, like, maybe like racism is probably bad. But also, so, like, the church is really important too. So let's make sure that we support that like actively and like. I don't know, like, this seems to be, like, a more progressive take on that idea, which also that ideal, I mean, went down in, in flames, and, and we haven't really, I mean, like, it just, it, like, the 20, like, the, like, the 2015, 16, like, between Johnson and Trump, I mean, it's just totally wiped off the map, but, like, well, it was earlier than that, too, I mean, it, it was sort of, oh, what was it, uh, I, I think so, I thought it was, like, 2010s, like, Big society. It was okay. That, yeah, that's it was sort of vibe, that's the sort of vibe I'm getting here. Like my my excitement about this idea of metamodernism is the same. It I was the 2010 sort of manifesto. 2010 manifesto mm -hmm. for the for David Cameron. Yeah. yeah. Um. So my short version. Let's see. So I mean, I I'm I'm obviously working only from my first impressions. Um. So what I see from this. Partially, this does not seem like this has like this philosophy ultimately has room for localism or for different communities making different choices. I don't see room for legitimate federalism, and I don't mean that federalism should be like like i'm 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 not a, a crazy states guy, but what I do think is that his focus on empathy and his and, and the commitment what it sounds like to politics de dedicated towards compassion so that injustice can truly be overcome that's as a problem statement that's a that's the same thesis statement as marxism i don't see that as fundamentally different that sounds like it's there's the enemy to be beaten we have to constantly do it as opposed to a, a more that's not what would i say that's that's not a sober politics that's a that's idealistic politics which is fine like you can be an a, an idealist I just don't think that works. I think you you eventually you make compromises and then and then you crash and burn, um, as opposed to politics being a constant negotiation. Basically, I don't this the I, I think it, embedded in the language is this is the idea of consensus and taking the best from all sides. But the thing is, one people don't want to give up the rest of it. They don't want to give up the ninety percent to decide. Oh yeah, sure, you can take the ten percent that you, as the elite, have selected as the portion for my ideology that gets to stay. And then we're going to discard ninety percent of who I am and who my family is and the town that I grew up and everything that we believe in and in our industry. Um, I don't. I see. There's there's a there's something at odds there. I think so. In terms of big society, I don't see it aligning at all. I would I would agree with that. 
that that critique. Um, my to use go back to that chess analogy. I would say the play for localism can't exist anymore because of internet and globalization. Um, we're too we're too interconnected. You mm-hmm. can't go back to that. We have to solve the problem on mass scale. Um, and they would say it's one of the, one of those problems that needs to be solved on mass scale is climate change. That cannot be a, a localist problem. That's what they would say. Mm-hmm. There has to be there has to be whole scale reform, not. Um, localist reform. That's and I and yeah. I can see I can see why you're actually pushing. You're, you're saying that feels authoritarian. It's like there needs to be some kind of authoritarian push in that. Um, if climate change is a real problem, and even if localism is an option, I have to imagine it's going to be more the quote unquote localism of, for example, Mennonite communities, where it's like, sure, that's an option, go do it, but we can't we can't predicate our society so, sure. based on it's communities got, like so this. as much as clear, i personally though, the, would the love context of, of sam's question is the big society proposal which proved to be unviable are you both familiar with what that entailed i'm not okay so so so, so part of the idea of the big society no. agenda which again did not happen so we don't know if it would have worked or not i guess probably the fact that it didn't work part of it was was brexit sort of derailed it mm. Um, uh, but also like, who knows if it's even possible, but one would think if it were possible somewhere, it would have been England. So it's sort of sad that we didn't get to see the try. Um, but the big society idea is specifically trying to undo that, that chess move. Uh, if we're, if, if if we're accepting that analogy, which I don't, for purposes of of metamodernism, it's a convenient one, but assuming that, that we are vaguely accepting it, the big society push is to say, the central government will forcefully, willingly, and of its own volition, divest the authority that has mm. been put into it and instead relocate it into local communities in a way that wow. like enforces that they, they, they're in charge now mm. of their own stuff. And by doing that, you bring ownership of people of their own communities obviously that that doesn't solve for the internet but also the internet's not the source of all the problems um yeah. it, it solves for a lot of other things so so that's so that's the kind of localism it would be like the kind of localism that says we abolish the department of education and move every federal agency to a, to a different state so that there is yeah. no centralized locus of like imperial u.s authority instead people actually have to manage themselves if you want to live in a good place you have to manage your state you can't just vote for someone every four years yeah um so that's like the theoretical underpinning is there is there compatibility between that and and meta and metamodernism yeah. interesting and i and yeah and that that's actually that's what i've been thinking about this whole time of like because i'm a big localist right you guys Revan even know this but it's like i guess i'm not sure how compatible it is with localism and that gives me pause of the fact that like i enjoy a lot of these ideas i think they're good but then it's like what does it do to localism and that's where i kind of am worried so I don't know, maybe big society is a means by which you can do that is like recognize the problems and then and then push the the authority to solve those problems down into the local level. But it's just I mean, who's going to do that if you're this great wise academic leader? Um, anyway, we should include all these as footnotes, right? These are all going to be footnotes of the episode. Uh, <laughs> I could put this as a footnote. That's a thing that is within the realm just, of possibility. Just, it, 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 we're, we're going. We're almost Plus at three two. hours Plus here. Two. Like it could be amazing, but I do need to. I do need to leave pretty Thank soon. You. So.